This is Internet Marketing. Hello and welcome to the Internet Marketing Podcast brought to you by Site Visibility. I'm your host, Scott Colnut, and with me today is Robin Christopherson. And we're going to be discussing creating a business case for digital accessibility. Welcome to the podcast, Robin. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. No problem. So can you talk me through a little bit about AbilityNet, the company that you work for, your goals at AbilityNet, and then a little bit about your specific role in AbilityNet? Great. So yes, I work for AbilityNet, as you say. It's a charity um, to do with technology and disability or impairments of all kinds. We're fortunate enough to have been around for a while. This is our 25th anniversary this year. And it's like being paid to play with tech (laughs) and the best kind of tech that actually helps people in really fundamental ways. So people with disabilities for whom choices would be really, really limited otherwise. It's such a leveler. It's such a, a door opener. For me, I'm blind, for example. I can't you know, do many (laughs) careers, but technology enables me to, you know, work as an IT consultant for AbilityNet. For other people, it might be to, you know, be a coder or whatever it might be using speech output. And if you look at all the other disabilities, all the other impairments as well, it might be some special equipment. It might be voice recognition. It might be helping with mobility to overcome some sort of physical issue um, to be able to get around to get to work or to get to the you know shops or whatever it might be so ability net is all about helping make sure that people can have as many opportunities as many choices as other people do so i'm really really uh, lucky to be working for such a brilliant organization my role uh, head of digital inclusion is more on the advocacy and consultancy side of things. Although I do help with delivery, we have a range of services to help organizations make sure that their websites and apps are inclusive. Um, We do assessments for individuals in the workplace or at home or in university, for example. So uh, there's a range of services and I'm slightly involved in most of the areas of AbilityNet, but uh, my main role is in advocacy, making sure that it's always on the agenda of government and other, you know, policy-making bodies, etc. And speaking to people like yourselves on brilliant podcasts like this to help get the message across about how accessibility is absolutely relevant and important to anyone working in IT. And marketing is absolutely no exception. Hopefully we're going to be able to explore that. Yeah. And so what's your experience just in the marketing side and the marketing industry? So marketing is all about reach. It's all about having a relevant message. If you have, if you're, you know, you you spend a lot of time curating and crafting what your messages are that you're going to get out there, making sure that you have um, done as much as you can to reach people where they are, etc. Social media, email, newsletters, all that sort of thing. Just imagine if a fifth of the people that you are reaching out to can't access that messaging, uh, can't take advantage of those um, discount codes or whatever it might be because they can't access that technology either visually or from a reading point of view or from a cognitive kind of understanding point of view or they physically can't click on the 
on the discount link or whatever it might be because you've done it in an inaccessible way. Now, hopefully we're also going to talk about how accessibility is actually for a much broader audience than just people with disabilities who need to have things coded or, you know, sufficient color contrast, having things in a certain way, which will help them overcome their impairment or will work properly with their assistive technology. But, you know, it's much, much broader than that. And it will actually make your comms, your messaging, your content better for Google, better SEO, better platform compatibility. Um, It's able to be uh, ported over to a range of different uses that you might want to put your efforts in marketing to. And it also makes it easier for people to see, comprehend, access, who have got no impairments at all. And we can talk about that. Congratulations, by the way, on the 25th year in, uh, well, for AbilityNet and for your role in that as well. I'm curious to know a little bit more. As you were talking now, I didn't know much about the offline aspects of what you do at AbilityNet. So could you give me like an estimated percentage split of the amount of companies that you help with offline challenges or solutions versus online? That's mostly with individuals, not yeah. companies. So, but it could be employees within companies. It's basically helping disabled people get the right tech, the right software solutions, the right tweaks to their devices yeah. to help them perform at their best, whether it's in education, in the workplace, or just to be able to order those groceries online. That right. was literally a lifesaver during COVID mm. for people who needed to get groceries to the door and who were vulnerable and isolating and that sort of thing. So, Yeah, I would probably say half and half. So half of what we do is aimed at the disabled individual. Um, Half is aimed at corporates and public sector uh, to make sure that their digital offerings are inclusive. And being a charity, you know, any surplus, as we call it, we don't call it profits, gets ploughed right into those free services to disabled individuals. So We've also got uh, an advice and information line. You can email inquiries at abilitynet.org.uk. And there's a free phone number as well. So there's loads of um, ways in which we deliver our sort of charitable mission. And we don't get any funding from government or anything like that. So the services that we have, the consultancy services around making digital more inclusive, is a brilliant model to pay for the free stuff that we do. And I'm already sensing from the way that you're speaking about this, that your role is encompassing of everything you've just described there. So it sounds like you are very keen and interested in support on the technology side and equipment side, but equally interested, experienced in the accessibility when it comes to websites and apps. um, And as we're going to be talking about the business case for those things as well. Absolutely. So I started as an assessor back in the mid 90s, going out to people in the home in the college, their colleges or wherever they might be yeah. and looking at the technology that, that that might help them overcome their particular challenges. And then in 2003, which was the first year that it became clear that there was a legal requirement for digital accessibility, I started the accessibility consultancy team, which now is 30 odd strong and yeah, delivering a lot of services. Uh, a recent development in that area is that we now work with individ- uh, with companies to be much more proactive to embed accessibility in everything they do because up until now we'd been delivering audits and doing you know diverse user testing and stuff like that to make mm-hmm. sure their products are compliant but also sort of real life usable for disabled people 
but it was only ever on a kind of a ad hoc basis you know oh, we've got this new project we know that it needs to be made accessible so we'll bring in AbilityNet to assure that element of it but really organizations need to think about accessibility right from the start of any project and that certainly goes for marketing as well accessibility isn't something that you want to get sign off on on a particular marketing campaign or you know a website article or whatever it might be you really want to think about building that in from the start and have an awareness of what the kind of key elements there are so that you're not having to look at you know retrofitting or making choices early on in the content that you're using that means that oh well mm, okay we didn't think about captions or we didn't think about the color contrast in the video ah uh, let's put it out anyway you know so um because it's the 11th hour and uh Marketing in particular is very high turnover, agile, you know, so it's not like it's something that you're working on for two years to overhaul a website. So, you know, thinking, uh, you know, shifting left in the process and thinking about accessibility or inclusive design, as I like to call it, all the way through means that you don't get any horrible surprises and that the content that you produce on a day-to-day basis is going to be pretty good. Now, you can have checks and balances in place after that as well. And you can get third-party organizations like AbilityNet involved. But it's really important to embed sort of accessibility maturity into what you do in your capabilities, in your processes, um, in your tooling, etc., training. And that's what we've been doing increasingly in recent months and years with um, helping organizations look at every corner of what they do and to find the gaps in oh, well, we're not, you know, when we procure things, we don't actually ask them if they're going to be accessible. And that's just buying in accessibility. So um, there's lots of time, there's lots of areas where you can shine a light on something and say, okay, we need to do that slightly better. And we've got kind of formalized processes that can help organizations do that. I think, did you say you were undertaking website usability testing from maybe the mid to late 90s? Was that right? So we did a certain amount yeah. of looking at organizations' websites and that sort of thing. But, and you know, you might be aware the Disability Discrimination Act came into effect in 1995, and that was a massive milestone for people with disabilities because they you could quite happily discriminate against them in the workplace, in education, in services before that right. and not really have any comeback. Now, that was brilliant, but because in that legislation it didn't call out digital because digital was still quite nascent it was quite young um, particularly online then there was this big hole so it was only in 2003 when they published a, a code of practice as it was called which specifically said this includes digital includes websites you must make sure that your digital services are inclusive that saw a massive increase in people demand you know needing services to help them with that process because anyone out there listening to this podcast who has looked at the accessibility guidelines for web for example they're not a walk in the park you know Mm -hmm. absolutely would agree with that there there's quite a lot to it there are some brilliant um projects that have distilled them down into a simpler checklist that you can use for the basics and so if you're not a, a web developer who needs to kind of deep dive there are some easy wins that people who are just content creators on a daily basis can make sure that they do to you know check for accessibility of their content so you don't have to be a you know a coder or anything like that to for example run the accessibility checker in word 
that is incredibly informative. And if there's one takeaway, guys, that you can have from today's show, it's to run, to have a look and have a play with the accessibility checker in office because it's absolutely brilliant. I know a lot of um, SEO boards out there will be familiar with Lighthouse. Well, there is some accessibility features in Lighthouse as well. So go and have a play with those two. There is absolutely an overlap and a very big one between SEO and accessibility. So Google will give you lots of brownie points if you think about accessibility as well. Uh, we're definitely going to come back to this point as well in a moment. But um, before we do, this concept of in- inclusive design, I think, is the phrase you use to describe it. Um, uh, ensuring you're thinking about accessibility from the start of X, a project, an initiative of some sort. Because you have been in the field a long time, have you seen that awareness improve in any way? Absolutely. And I'm going to quote Larry Goldberg here from um, Verizon. He, he, I think, coined the phrase born accessible. And you've probably heard of shift left. Well, if you can consider accessibility right from, in the case of a a new digital project, for example, right from the wireframe and design mock-up stage, right through to coding templates, right through to populating page content, right through at UAT, you know, before you go live, doing some actual diverse user testing and double checking the code, that sort of thing. Then you can have a brilliantly inclusive project. If it's, you know, creating marketing materials, then it's, you know, what I was talking about before, checking headings, alternative text, making sure that links are clickable from the keyboard, you know, that the particular CMS that you're using doesn't have, um, doesn't produce links that need to use a mouse, that sort of thing. So there's like a checklist that you can use. And a lot of CMSs have built-in accessibility functionality, some better than others. A lot of content starts off in Word, for example, as I mentioned before, or in an Outlook email. Then there's brilliant accessibility features in there too with the accessibility checker that I talked about. So yeah, there's there's some simple things that you can do. But this idea of being aware of accessibility and the kind of key do's and don'ts and bearing it in mind as part of your day job and not delegating it to any accessibility champions you might have within your team or within your organization, but to kind of own it yourself, that is going to be massive. That's going to make your content so much more inclusive. And the reason why I like the idea of inclusive design as the phrase to to think about rather than accessibility is because, yes, it's about accessibility and yes, it's the accessibility guidelines that you would look at. There are ones for web, there's ones for um, iOS apps, there's ones for Android. So yes, it's it's the accessibility guidelines at the end of the day. And yes, they're aimed at disabled people. But if you follow those guidelines, then you're going to make products that are so much easier for every single user. And that is without exaggeration. And you might be thinking, well, how on earth are the accessibility guidelines going to help every single one of our consumers of, you know, the, the messaging that we're putting out there? Well, Mobile is definitely the, you know, it's a mobile first age that we're living in. Google put out figures saying that 60 plus percent of websites that people visit are from mobile devices. So it's, you know, a mobile first world in that respect. And mobile in particular is like extreme computing. So everyone listening to this podcast has probably used their phone one handed today, if not multiple times. And that could be for a number of reasons. It could be because you've only got one hand or it could be for something much more mundane, like you've got a cup of coffee in the other one, or you just happen to 
pick up your phone and use your thumb and not think about holding your phone in the other hand, etc. So there's loads of times when you have those requirements of being, you know, not as dexterous as someone who's doing it carefully with both hands or they're using a desktop operating system with a mouse, that sort of thing. And so, yeah, whether you're juggling your phone one-handed out of choice or whether you've only got one hand or whether you happen to have a broken wrist for a while, you have exactly the same requirements that somebody with Parkinson's or a tremor has 24-7. And the guidelines, the accessibility outlines for that group, you know, things like separating tappable areas with white space so you don't hit the wrong one, having minimal tappable area size of 44 by 44 px if you're interested um so that they're not too small to to aim at those requirements will help every single user who's using a mobile device in a kind of a casual way and obviously it'll help people who need those requirements because of an impairment or disability be able to access your content at all and those same uh, you know ideas of situational impairment go for vision you know whether it's a small sheet of glass on a sunny day you need the same color contrast and decent default font choices. You know, hello, iOS 7, where Johnny Ive decided to make all the fonts really, really slender um, as someone with a vision impairment 24-7. Or if you're in a noisy cafe um, or whether you're a student who's, you know, sneaky watching a video under the you know desk in the lecture theater and they have the YouTube captions turned on. You know, Google said that um, 65% of people watching YouTube videos have captions turned on. And that's not that they all have a vision impairment, a hearing impairment. Mm. It's that they are watching it in a noisy environment, or maybe it's all of those screens in bars or stations or restaurants where they have the sound turned off and just the, the subtitles on. I could go on and on. Yeah. You know, um, if you're trying to order an Uber after a you know, good night out, then you are cognitive impaired and you need to have extreme UX, just like somebody with a, a cognitive impairment 24-7 needs to be able to successfully order an Uber at all. So if you apply those same messages, those same concepts to the marketing comms that you're putting out, make sure you follow the accessibility guidelines and everybody will have a better time in accessing your content. And some people will be able to access it full stop when otherwise they wouldn't have been able to, but everyone will have a better time. There was some brilliant research. I'll just finish off. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Um, The RNIB, the Royal National Institute of the Blind, they did some research and they got a group of uh, visually impaired people uh, to look at a number of different websites. And surprise, surprise, the, the ones that were compliant, that were accessible, were much easier to use. But that wasn't the big finding. They also had a control group of able-bodied testers, which all good research uh, studies should have so that you can compare and contrast. And the able-bodied group actually found the accessible websites much easier to use as well. On average, they performed the tasks that they were given 35% more quickly. And who wouldn't get, you know, um, bite someone's hand off for a 35% usability bonus in what you're doing? So there are very real benefits for doing things in an inclusive way. And that's why I like to think of doing things, you know, according to the accessibility guidelines as making them inclusive. So digital inclusion is what I'm talking about here because accessibility absolutely is at the heart of it, but there's too much baggage associated with it. People think it's only for disabled people. Whereas actually if it's a numbers game, 
it's for everybody and you will get the disabled people, the 15% of your audience that, that absolutely need it, but everybody will benefit from it. Digital inclusion, and I'm thinking back to, did you say the Disability Discrimination Act was um, finalised in 2003? Is that when it came in? Yeah. It came in in 1995, but Fine, they yeah. didn't mention digital. 2003 was when that, 2003. they had like an appendix to it, which said, oh, by the way, guys, digital's covered as well. Because mm. there was a lot of organisations that were kind of prevaricating before then. I don't think it's covered. Mm. So in the last, it's been 20 years now. And what I'm thinking here is there, there are a lot of messages that you shared there about the benefits of digital inclusion beyond just the accessibility needs of a subset of users. It's really the benefits to everyone that you talked about there. But do you think this concept of digital inclusion has improved over the last 20 years? And if it has improved, have there been any milestones in the last 20 years that you can point to and say, ah, that made a big difference? Absolutely, it's improved. It's been incremental Mm. with the rise of digital generally. And, you know, in 20 years, that has come on in leaps and bounds. I mean, just imagine a computer in front of you or your phone and you have no internet connection. It's just, you know, what would you do with it? A bit of word processing, that sort of thing. It just isn't a useful device. So with the, you know, ubiquity of the internet and now with everything going online, it's just like a portal to the world. And that's why it's such an enabler. You know, if you can't use a standard keyboard, use an ergonomic one or use voice recognition. You know, if you can't use a mouse, then use the keystroke alternatives or, you know, again, voice command it. If you can't see the screen, use speech output or a braille display. I could go on and on. Mm. The redundancy, which is the kind of technical term for choice that's built into computers is astronomical. It's breathtaking. And even, and now you can control computers by thoughts, you know, the yeah. Neuralink um, <laughs> uh, project of uh, Elon Musk, et cetera, and others. So, you know, there's, there's, there's such a variety of ways of interfacing, which is incredibly empowering. But what you're interfacing is just, you know, mushroomed beyond people's wildest imagination, I would have thought 20 years ago. Mm. So digital is absolutely important. I don't need to, you know, I can't stress that enough. And I'm sure you, your listeners will will agree, you know, it's all about the internet and digital and who could imagine a world without it. So the need for things to be done in an inclusive way has grown at, with digital and, you know, the need, the, the 15% of the organization, of the um, population that that would literally be locked out from the digital world otherwise um, has become proportionately louder and, and better appreciated. But it's really the advent of the smartphone, which is in the sort of last 10 years massively, that, uh, like I said before, has led to this age of kind of extreme computing. Mm. And that means that people are consuming digital everywhere. And then obviously we could talk about wearables and stuff like that, but you know, it's only going to proliferate. So the more um, you're taking devices with you, the more extreme your requirements are and the more of a need there is to do things in a really inclusive way. So, you know, getting the message out to people with whatever kind of campaign you're working on at the moment, you need to be much more aware of the number of platforms and the variety of platforms that people will be accessing them on. And then the next age of computing, I would argue, is the age of ambient computing, where in the last sort of five years or so, 
with the rise of smart speakers and virtual assistants, you can just talk to the air and you'll get a response, information, you know, the service that you want, whatever it might be, the function to perform, you know, turning your heating on or off, whatever it might be. Often don't even know where the device was that mm. uh, reacted to that, or um, in many cases, which one of them will respond. But um, this idea of just talking to the air and things happen, you know, we're so far away from the idea of having one device, having to read a manual and, you know, a steep learning curve. You just talk to the air yeah. now. And we could talk about, you know, the idea of AI making that simpler still and things like chat GPT, which towards the end of last year, I think is going to be a milestone. But um, so, yeah, I think that with the proliferation of platforms, if you have content that is going to be inclusive, for example, able to be spoken well for someone like myself who can't see at all, you know, if you bring up a web page and you click on that immersive reader, uh, mode. Um, most browsers have them these days. You strip out all the gubbins and stuff. Then that is basically how the content will be scraped by a smart speaker to give the response when somebody asks about information on your company, for example. And if you hit the play button on that in your browser and you start listening and horror to horror of horrors, you can't see it on the screen, but it suddenly starts reading out a load of JavaScript, then I'll get that. And I do on a daily basis because there's a lot of hidden horrors on web pages for speech output software. And the smart speaker person will get that as well in their response from their echo or whatever it might be. So you really do need to think about how this content's going to be repurposed and Accessibility, which just keeps on coming back to accessibility as being mm. at the heart of what will improve your content for the broadest possible audience, regardless of impairment or device or environment. There's so much that I want to break down there, but um, I want to go back a little bit to AbilityNet and the types of companies that contact you, because you you mentioned there that, you know, you think digital inclusion over the last 20 years, the awareness of that has gradually improved. And just paraphrasing a little bit, it sounds like there are a greater number of companies now that appreciate that digital inclusion is from the start, not something that you try and tack on at the end for some kind of box ticking exercise. What are the triggers that cause companies to contact AbilityNet now? Are there any commonalities in that? I think that compliance is still a big factor. And certainly in the last few years, when the public sector regulations have come in. Your listeners may or may not be aware of the kind of legislative landscape. We talked about <laughs> the DDA. They've probably heard of the Equality Act, which came in in 2010. And that was massive because with the DDA, there was no requirement for proactivity. So if a disabled person went for a job interview and the employer said, oh, well, we haven't got any you know, wheelchair users or blind users or deaf user, um, employees. And we haven't actually got the systems in place or the, you know, the ramps in place or whatever it might be. So they might not say it to their faces, but we're not going to have you. Right. And there was no recourse there. So the Equality Act helped there, which said that even if you haven't got those employees today, or you're not aware of those customers today, you absolutely need to make reasonable adjustments to make sure that your premises, your services, your practices are inclusive so that you, you know, you can't turn people away 
with the reason that oh it's going to be too much of a uh you know wrench to yeah. accommodate you because you're our first one for example yeah. so that was absolutely you know a, a landmark shift in legislation then just before brexit the eu's really good legislation that kind of took it one step further was brought into the uk but unfortunately only covered public sector then the other one that is in the eu for other sectors didn't make it before brexit you know the guillotine uh, of brexit so yeah. unfortunately we only have the public sector one now how does that differ well the equality act brilliant as it was um, wasn't enforced so it had no teeth so it required people with a disability taking an organization to court like you know domino's was in in the us when it had an inaccessible app and that's really challenging for a disabled person or even a group of dis- disabled people that are kind of um helped by a an organization like the RNIB for example so and often they weren't successful because um the other the company had better lawyers basically yeah so when the public sector regulations came along the government for the first time ever would monitor websites in the public sector and would find them so that made them really sit up and listen mm. so four or five years ago when that came into effect we saw a massive shift in public sector organizations so that's local authorities fe and he colleges um government you know central government and stuff suddenly pulling their finger out and really doing a, a good job because otherwise they might be you know uh fined and people could find out because you know you could put in a freedom of information request and find mm. out which local authorities or universities have been fined for not being inclusive so that was brilliant but yeah unfortunately brexit put paid to the to the other one but yeah imagine if you know there was um no traffic wardens or speed cameras you know if though if that area of the law wasn't enforced you know things would kind of become it would be chaos you know yeah. but there's never been like a an arming army of traffic wardens for the internet which um but yeah we're seeing a bit of a change now considering how important this is absolutely vital to be a leading digital first country it's about time what do you think is the most impactful way in which you've communicated some of these key messages about digital inclusion to companies so you, you're on the podcast now you're using this as a marketing medium are there any marketing mediums or messages that have been particularly effective in communicating what you feel is important about digital inclusion i think just like with marketing in general it's you know go go where the people are and that's pretty much you know use all the channels right. so social media we're very active there we have a newsletter we put loads of articles on our website but we also sit on government committees and things or okay. party parliamentary groups and we would be involved in government consultation processes and stuff like that but when we're out there trying to get the message across we would absolutely cover both the carrots and the sticks so we were talking about the sticks a moment ago and yeah. you know thankfully they're getting kind of bigger and more knobbly to hit people with um <laughs> but the carrots I, we would argue are even more important and compelling you know the the business case there's been some brilliant surveys and research done um on things like the click away pound and so it's you know really really important to cover that as well because there's a there's a significant ROI here 
I've not heard um, of that. I've not heard of that report. Did you say the click away pound? Yeah. So the, I think it was the Shaw Trust who did a report a couple of years ago where they estimated the purple pound. So that's the disposable income of yeah. disabled people and their families. So this is where people have money to spend. So this is over and above, you know, once they've earned their crust and they've paid their bills, they've got money to spend. They might spend it on your services or they might spend it elsewhere. And that's estimated at £274 billion in the UK per annum of disabled people and their families. So that's a lot of money to spend. That's a big sector. It's 15% of the the population, as I've said. Mm. And the Clickaway Pound basically surveyed those that sector and there were some really interesting findings, not surprising from us, but, you know, hopefully eye-opening for other people. 76% of them said that if they met in accessibility in an online trans- transaction they were trying to do or a website, they'd go elsewhere. So, you know, if there is another choice, they'll go there and you'll lose their custom. Um, there's been, you know, there's lots of other useful findings in there, but it's basically saying you will lose this very significant customer base or consumer base if you don't um, do, you know, think about inclusive design. A lot of around brand damage, you know, word of mouth uh, recommendation and that sort of thing. All of those things go out of the window if you have ruined the trust with your consumers by excluding them or making it incredibly frustrating for them to use that site. I mean, Amazon, absolutely brilliant. But imagine, guys, if the images weren't loading on a web page how much would you trust the description of the (laughs) manufacturer or the comments in the reviews before you hit buy now on that product if you couldn't actually see it Mm. well that's what it's like for me because none of those images have alternative text descriptions to them so they're not there for me so um well in fact they are but they're this horrendous string which is probably a auto-generated um, file name of the image, which, by the way, guys, if you don't label your images, people are probably going to hear, yeah. um, you know, in a number of uh, situations. So, yeah, um, it's very easy to erode trust with your consumers. And, you know, because it's a digital first world and there's so much choice out there in, in many areas, they will go elsewhere. So that's another reason to to really think carefully about how you prioritise accessibility and and digital inclusion so yeah really really important that you think about um, not just making you know your products inclusive because you would otherwise be locking people out but thinking of that much bigger kind of 35 percent usability bonus for everybody else as well and that makes the numbers really start to pop if that 274 billion wasn't eye-opening enough Hmm. As you've been talking, we've kind of been referencing websites, maybe apps a little bit as well. But on the technology side coming into this podcast, I was thinking about the question, you know, in the last 20 years, then what milestones might have there, uh, may there have been in this space of digital inclusion? And actually, you know, smartphone came to mind for me in the you know mid to late 2000s. And then I was thinking, well, actually, smart speakers and virtual assistants in that respect, which you referenced, would probably have been a huge development. And then you referenced it and you started to talk about how, uh, what uh, I think you referenced it as ambient technology or um, how, what was, it, what was the phrase? Computing, yeah. Ambient computing, yeah. Has it been a huge development for you? Like um, just speaking from your personal experience, has it changed the way in which you interface with businesses? Absolutely. And how 
disabled individuals interface with the digital world yeah. entirely. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned, you know, those, those different kind of milestones, wearables as well, I would say, yeah. where you've got a lot more data that's being collected about an individual, you know, the quantified self, which can really help with health and making sure that people are able to monitor their own health because, you know, there's only so many talking blood pressure monitors or, <laughs> you know, talking exercise bikes out there. But as long as you've got something on your wrist, which can tell you your heart rate, tell you whether you've got um, AFib or, you know, an irregular heartbeat or whatever it might be, that's incredibly empowering for people that otherwise wouldn't be able to access those in a more convenient, you know, using a, a less accessible or inclusive device. Oh, and by the way, I know that the Apple Watch doesn't measure your blood pressure yet so yeah but anyway there are talking blood pressure meters out there but um to be able to take all of that data via bluetooth and whack it into one central place like the health app is incredibly empowering but also i think that the mainstreaming of what was before specialist and very expensive technologies so you know before if i as a blind person wanted to make my computer talk I would have to spend hundreds of pounds, in fact, the same amount again as the price of the computer to get a really good screen reader on it. Obviously, narrators always being built into Windows and VoiceOver on the Mac, but until quite recently, they've been the screen reader that was just good enough to help you download the better one so mm. that you could actually do something, uh, you know, with your computer that was, you know, productive, etc. So nowadays, everything, you know, is almost there in the box. And AbilityNet has got a brilliant website called mycomputermyway.com. And if you go there, you'll find step-by-step guides on how you can customize your devices, Windows, Mac OS, iOS, iPad OS, Android, etc. And popular suites like Office, where everything that's there to be customized and tailored for your, you know, to help you is, you know, outlined in those terms. And unlike a lot of guides online, which might say, okay, now click on this and now click on that. That's no good for someone like myself, for example. So it'll also say, or, you know, press Alt plus F and then C or whatever it might be. So it gives you the keystroke ways of doing it as well. So it's a very inclusive resource. And we would invite anyone to play with the accessibility settings on their devices, because like I was saying before about accessibility, not just being for disabled people, the accessibility settings on your devices are absolutely not for just for disabled people, yeah. for everybody. And that's why Apple have brought accessibility out up from under general to the main level in the settings app in iOS, for example. And if you did like a spider diagram of all of the settings in the settings app, the accessibility section would be well over half of the whole of the settings app. So that's a whole bunch of functionality that you're ignoring you know, go for it. We're all different shapes and sizes. Nobody should settle for the vanilla out-of-box experience on their devices. So there's some really, really powerful stuff in there. So yeah, I think that's another major advance, Mm. which is the mainstreaming of accessibility features of really powerful accessibility solutions being built into devices. And all of the different devices, wearables, etc., that again, are really inclusive that have given people a lot more, you know, ways of, you know, interfacing with the digital world, but also kind of integrating their information with it as well. And for me as a blind person to be able to unlock my Mac just from my wrist or authenticate something with a biometric 
rather than having to dig out a password a bit like everybody else you know it's a it's a much easier way of doing it but when you have a disability those kind of fiddly processes can often be much more challenging as well you know biometrics and easy ways of being able to authenticate yourself have played a massive part in making the lives of disabled people easier as well I know you're not solely responsible for marketing at AbilityNet, but I am curious now, having you said all of that, I was thinking about all of the devices around me and the fact that, you know, even now when we're thinking about working with companies, we don't necessarily think automatically of the website and how we'll support them with their website development. Sometimes it might be an app or, and that could be a smartphone app or it could be a voice app of some sort. Has the development in that technology and the new interfaces that are available change or is it changing the way that AbilityNet are thinking about marketing? I would lie if I said, you know, yes, in a big way, because we're probably still focusing on channels that we have, we were five years ago or even 10 years ago. Um, There are new ones, you know, kind of a new hot app on a smartphone that you need to also um, target in your comms, etc. But as far as kind of radically new ways of doing things, I don't think so. I mean, we, for example, aren't targeting smart speakers as yet with advertising, with, I mean, with marketing, but how would you do it? I mean, it's not really an open enough platform yet. We have been in discussions with Amazon to make sure that if people ask about AbilityNet and you can, you guys at home, you can pause and you can, you know, just ask any Uh kind of loose question about who AbilityNet are and what they do, and you'll get really good responses. So we have done that and you get calls to action in those responses as well. Interestingly, Amazon were perfectly happy to have really quite kind of hardcore calls to action in those, even to the extent that, I mean, we haven't done this yet, but they are happy for you to have a card sent to the alexa i'm going to say her name um (laughs) app with you know links and other things that could include um discount codes and stuff like that so they're up for it um i don't think it's just because we've got a really good relationship with them but you know so there is if anyone out there is working for a company that doesn't have a strategy or something to say about the smart speaker platform for example then they should because it's here to stay it's got a lot of potential and people do use it for more than just the weather and listening to you know music and stuff like that so yeah you absolutely should be thinking along those lines and often when i'm doing presentations i talk about future platforms you know like ar or mr where potentially any sheet of glass that you pass by or you know that you're kind of enclosed in in a driverless car or something you know where you've got someone's eyeballs even if it's just for a few seconds might well be seen as like a canvas for advertising and messaging and stuff like that and there are actually accessibility considerations that are unique to that kind of transparent canvas as well so you'd need to you'd want to be bearing those in mind too but yeah, I mean, I think that the platforms are only going to get more and more diverse. So um, as long as you're always thinking in an inclusive way and thinking, well, what are the implications here for people with these particular impairments? Or if it's a really sunny day or they're accessing it on a you know a bumpy bus and they're not quite so 
dexterous as they would normally be. The good news, though, is that all of those things are covered in the accessibility guidelines, so you kind of don't have to stress about them. You just need to follow the guidelines. One of the reasons I asked that question is because I was thinking about how I interact with my A-L-E-X-A device. I need to spell it out as well because there is one in front of me and I've not turned it on do not disturb mode. But um, I was thinking about it's very useful having all of these devices and having that that ambient technology to to work with, the ambient computing to work with, but only on the condition, like you said, that digital inclusion is built in from the start. And actually, from what I've found, I've found apps on Amazon difficult to configure and experiment with. It might be easier now when I tried a couple of years ago, but I was thinking that I'm you know, reasonably technically savvy and it wasn't particularly accessible. It wasn't particularly easy. So actually, um, for me, maybe there was some ground to make up there um, with any voice assistant and any voice app in making that process of creating voice apps and interfaces a little bit easier. That was what was going through my mind. Yeah, there are loads of different developer platforms or environments to create skills for the Echo. And the Echo is definitely the kind of go-to smart speaker platform for developers because it's in most homes. It's incredibly affordable. And like I say, the dev tools are quite mature now. So I would definitely look at that as being the first one that you would target. The smarts within the smart speaker itself have come a long way and discoverability is a lot better. You can just ask her a bunch of stuff about, oh, you know, what um, such and such have you got? Like what's, you know, reminder skills have you got? What games can I play? Or even just like, what can I do? You know, what what new things have you got? You can just be quite freeform about what you ask her. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely, uh, you know, it's a really flourishing platform. Mm. And I was going to make some other point, but it's gone now. <laughs> it might come back. <laughs> no worries. Well, uh, in closing for this episode, uh, you had mentioned at the beginning, you, you seemed so excited. I could hear the energy as you were talking about the your experimentation with, I think you said uh, technology, well, I'm assuming software and hardware. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to know if there's anything that you're experimenting with at the moment that uh, you would just highly recommend or that you're excited about that you think, oh, wow, this really represents what the kind of, it's just a, an excellent device or something that represents where digital inclusion is going from a technology standpoint. I mean, I think mainstream, the fact that mainstream devices are so inclusive these days, I'm particularly thinking of Apple. You mm-hmm. know, disabled people really aren't treated as second-class citizens when it comes to Apple devices, you know that the new hotness that comes out, whether it's a VR headset this year or an AR headset, which is looking like it's been pushed back a couple of years, you know that regardless of your impairment, even if it's like someone like myself who's blind, there will be something in that new platform for us. So LiDAR, for example, is making a huge difference for people who need to have pinpoint ranging accuracy now obviously in the epidemic there were in the pandemic there was social distancing and mm. stuff like that but as a blind person to have lidar in your phone or in the long awaited apple glasses as and when they come out hmm. you know there is already software built into the camera app on your phone which will not only tell you how close you are to other people where they are if you've got the airpods then you've got the spatial audio and it can give you information there as to exactly where those people are but you can also find doors door detection is really really good these days and so it will not only tell me you know guide me to the door it will also tell me where the handle is that i can actually put my hand out and 
and actually find that knob and that's a lidar thing plus a a camera thing where it's looking at any text in the viewfinder and doing optical character recognition on it and it will tell you if it's a pull or a push or it'll tell you the opening times and stuff like that so i think we are absolutely surrounded by really really cutting edge tech and the thing that i'm most excited about is what is the next new gadget that will you know put that on my face mm. instead of just on in my pocket or on my wrist or um you know i mentioned chat gbt gpt mm. earlier and for a lot of people that level of ai is just going to explode in its uses both for good and nefarious reasons, uh, you know, purposes. But if we thought that, you know, our smart speakers were half decent today, then as soon as there are some APIs that can be leveraged around the level of smarts that we've got in something like the OpenAI projects that are out there in beta at the moment, mm. which are frankly breathtaking, um, we won't we won't believe what ambient computing and our virtual assistants are going to be able to do for us tomorrow. And I know everyone's thinking, well, Siri's been around for 10 years and it's absolutely hopeless. And that is absolutely true, but (laughs) it's still very, very useful in many ways too. But yeah, I think we'll look back at this time and we'll think, blimey, we thought things were smart today, (laughs) but you know, we, you know, it's really, really turned a corner. So I think AI and the devices that can help us leverage AI in the daily in the day-to-day things that we do, that's the thing that I'm really most excited about. Amazing. Before I let you go, Robin, well, firstly, I just want to say, because I don't think I covered this at the beginning, but Robin Christopherson, MBE, no less. So congratulations for that. Um, but if people want to learn more about you and AbilityNet, where can they find you? Brilliant. So yeah, AbilityNet, uh, all one word, and that's abilitynet.org.uk. Check us out. We've got loads of brilliant resources there we've got loads of free webinars you don't have to have accessibility in your job title or jd anything to do with technology in the broadest sense any content creator um you marketers out there we're absolutely um talking to you as well we've got um a brilliant set of sessions that were recorded at our november our annual tech share pro conference and several of those are around SEO and marketing. So go and have a listen to those. We had a brilliant discussion with two guys from Google about the overlap between SEO and accessibility. Basically, accessibility is pushing in the same direction and ignore it at your peril <laughs> if you care about SEO. Um, so yeah, loads of resources on our website and there is a free phone number on, on there as well. I can't remember it at the moment because it changed recently. So, um, but yeah, it should be front and center if you want to give it to your, you know, disabled family members, friends, colleagues, etc., who might want to have a chat with an actual person about how tech might be able to help them get the most out of their devices and their work and education, etc. Uh, well, links to everything and uh, including the telephone number. I'll make sure there's a telephone number in the show notes. So all of that will be in the show notes. Um, for now Robin I know I could talk to you about so much I've written down notes today about other things I'd like to talk about so at some point in the future I would love to have you back on but for now uh, this has been the Internet Marketing Podcast take care thanks guys